model that I use for communication practice is a training model. So just like if you were training for a marathon or training for, you know, a triathlon, you start small and you build capacity and it's, you know, it's, that's, that's how we heal trauma. That's how we increase the window of tolerance. And that's how we develop skill and communication is you don't go into the most challenging conversation in your life after you've taken one seminar. Welcome to the Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. I'm David Trelevin, and this is a podcast that explores the intersection of mindfulness, meditation, and traumatic stress. In this episode, I'm speaking with Oren J. Sofer. Oren teaches mindfulness, meditation, and nonviolent communication, a practice that focuses on shared humanity and offers a concrete set of skills to navigate conflict and polarization. Oren took his interest and experience with mindfulness directly into the domain of communication, and that's what I had him on to talk about. He's the author of a book called Say What You Mean, A Mindful Approach to Nonviolent Communication. And he's also trained as a trauma professional, which was helpful as we explored ways that dialogue can be healing when it comes to trauma. We discuss the philosophical roots of nonviolent communication and how this applies to mindfulness and trauma, the form of nonviolent communication and how this can be mistaken for its essence ways that an understanding of trauma can help with conflict, and also the unique challenges that are being posed by social media to mindful and compassionate communication. I'd been wanting to interview Oren for a while and was really happy to have him on the podcast. So without further ado, here is Oren J. Sofer. Well, I'm here with Oren J. Sofer. Oren, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure, David. Thanks for inviting me. So lots to talk about here. And I thought as a way to start, I could just ask you to um, you know, share some of your story with the audience of people that don't know how you came to this work around mindfulness, meditation, nonviolent mm-hmm. communication, and just how did you, how'd you get here? Yeah, sure. Thanks. So I grew up in a Jewish family in the suburbs outside of New York City, um, middle class, uh, fairly privileged, and at the same time had my own share of trauma and, um, and pain in my family around mental illness and some emotional volatility and violence and growing up in the eighties and nineties as the environmental crisis was really starting to land on the map of public consciousness more. I was left with a lot of deep questions about my role in the world and how I could best contribute. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of the, the combination of the the personal suffering and pain that I was carrying that was unresolved, just a, a lot of suppressed anger and rage and pain that I was unaware of, really. Uh, the combination of that, um, the world suffering... And then in my late teens and twenties, uh, and early twenties, I was, I was working as an actor actually in New York city. Oh yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. I started, uh, when I was about 12 or 13 as a childhood actor and also motivated actually by wanting to make a difference in the world by sure. thinking like, oh, gee, you know, this is a way to have a platform to reach people, to have leverage and, um, but I got really disillusioned and disconnected from myself I was doing a lot of drugs and running around all over New York City, and I just kind of lost myself. Mm. And so a, a series of events where my world kind of came crashing down. My parents were getting divorced. I had a falling out with my friends. My The girlfriend of, of, at the time and I split up and uh, sort of turned my attention to spirituality Mm-hmm. Um, through a series of um, circumstances that I, I won't go into. But mm-hmm. I ended up um, getting to study abroad in India as part of my undergraduate uh, work and wa- wound up at, at a monastery in Bodhgaya, which is the place where the Buddha was enlightened and got introduced to the Dharma, to meditation practice in the Buddhist tradition. And it, it totally changed my life. It, it mm-hmm. really just reoriented my whole set of priorities. It put me on a path of personal healing, which then later developed into learning tools for interpersonal communication through Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication, and then eventually coming into contact with Peter Levine's work and doing some of my own internal trauma healing. 
and then eventually being asked to to teach and to share these practices with others in in the service of more healing and resilience and clarity in mm-hmm. in life so that's that's the short version that's great. Yeah. I, this is where I realize you and I have a lot of overlap. Um, mm-hmm. I even think maybe even our age, like ways that we've been touched by practice and mm-hmm. and where you are. And can you talk a little bit about the the what was the moment for you around the mindful communication piece or, or nonviolent communication? Because the worlds that you're putting together, I'm so curious what um, lit right. you up to want to do that work. Sure. Well, I mean, the story that I that I tell is always, uh, so I was in my mid-20s, I was living and working at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, which is the first residential insight meditation uh, center founded in the United States. Didn't the Dalai Lama bowl there? Yeah, he did. Yeah, <laughs> it was taken over from some Catholic nuns, and there's a there's a bowling alley in, in the basement. And he came there in the late seventies, I think, um, to visit Sharon and and Joseph and Jack. Um, and yeah, yeah, he he bowled there. <laughs> he has an amazing story. Neat photos of that. So I was living and working there as a cook. Oh wow! And this was about five or six years into my meditation practice, and I was starting to make some, I don't know, you say progress or something, you know, just getting a handle on, on my own mind a little bit, starting to like find some purchase internally with the flood of emotions and thoughts. And, Mm. um, but I would get into arguments with my coworkers about really petty things like how to cut the carrots or how long to steam the broccoli. (laughs) And then I noticed, so I noticed that. And then I noticed that when I would talk to my family, my parents, my brother, um, the, qualities of compassion and patience and kindness and truthfulness that I was practicing on the cushion were just not available. It was Mm -hmm. like I was a different person. I would just sort of, you know, in in trauma healing work, you would say I would flip into a kind of trance where I was sort of stuck in these other states and not able to access these values that I held so dearly. And so I realized there was a gap. And even though the Buddha's teachings are very clear about this, the path being a whole hearted way of life Mm -hmm. that integrates your livelihood, your relationships, your speech, it wasn't translating. And so I happened to come across the work of Dr. Rosenberg, Marshall Rosenberg, who founded Nonviolent Communication at that time. And it was like this missing piece. Um, I heard someone, uh, another trainer once say that nonviolent communication is like the hands and the feet of spirituality. Like it it gives us Mm. those tools to put it into practice, to walk it, to reach out, to, to, to use it in our life. And so I was immediately taken with the practice because it was like this revelation, uh, of how to translate this very deep transformative perspective on life into the nuts and bolts uh, nitty-gritty of messy human relationships. Right, right. It's like literally where the rubber hits the road. Yep. So many times after a retreat <laughs> or any kind of sit, just thinking, mm-hmm. I feel really connected. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, moving right into that terrain of relationship right. and how difficult that can be. Yeah. I remember the first time for those that haven't gotten to explore nonviolent communication or Marshall Rosenberg, I remember the first time I heard about nonviolent communication, I kind of rolled my eyes mm-hmm. and felt a little bit like as someone who's shaped often to be doing a lot of kind of pleasing and appeasing, partly being mm-hmm. Canadian, but also my own socialization and in my family, I thought, oh, wow, here's another level of just everyone trying to make nice. Mm-hmm. And then the moment, the first couple times that I got to see webinars around Marshall Rosenberg and, and the work generally, I realized that that wasn't true, that it was actually a, a way to direct a lot of anger, frustration, but in a way that people could stay online, like you're saying, where you're not mm-hmm. falling into the trance. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about, I mean, Marshall Rosenberg, from my memory, also came from inner city Chicago and had actually had experienced a lot of violence in his own life. Mm-hmm. And that's probably where this came from. But mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about maybe that impression that people have about nonviolent communication? Yeah. After. yeah, absolutely. So yeah, Dr. Rosenberg grew up in Detroit, close. Um, uh-huh. And in the, uh, in the forties, he was born in the late thirties and he lived through the race riots there, the uprisings. This, I think it was the first wave of uprisings in the forties 
where uh, a few dozen people lost their lives uh, just a few blocks from his house. And it ha- he talked about it later in life as having a very profound impact on him and a certain kind of education mm-hmm. that he learned that we live in a world where people might want to hurt you because of the color of your skin. Uh, there was also a lot of anti-Semitism he and his family experienced growing up at that time. And again, he said, I learned that I live in a world where people might want to hurt you or do violence to you because of your last name. So he had these experiences, but he also had other experiences of his fa- in his family of seeing the quality of love and joyful giving. His grandmother was um, paralyzed and his uncle would come over their house in the evenings to take care of her, to feed her, to dress her, to bathe her. And he would just be beaming. Uh, he would just be so overjoyed at being able to care for his mom. And he said that, you know, the, the juxtaposition between these two experiences of the, the willingness to do violence on the one hand by humans and on the other hand, this very rich, tender, beautiful expression of joy and giving left him with a profound question about what is it in our nature What is it that makes the difference between us resorting to violence versus staying connected to compassion and generosity and our shared humanity? And so those Mm -hmm. were the questions that he set out to to uncover. And so the the system of nonviolent communication that he devised was his answer to that, was his solution. And the the place where nonviolent communication gets tripped up is, I think, common for for many disciplines and it's the place that between the form and the essence or mm-hmm. the exterior and the interior the expression and the spirit and so the spirit of it is very much this sense of how do we stay connected to our shared humanity build understanding and connection in order to collaborate in order to meet fundamental human needs that's the aim it's a big aim it's a huge aim. And yeah. that's why he called it nonviolent communication was because he wanted to place it within the tradition of Kingian and Gandhian nonviolence because he saw it as a tool for social change, not just for personal healing or interpersonal conflict mediation, but actually to transform the systems of our society. And he also he saw the role one of his key insights was that the ways that we think about things, the ways that we perceive and then and then express our emotions and interface of relationships with other human beings plays a very pivotal role in whether or not we see violence as a viable strategy mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. we can transform that experience by working with the thoughts and perceptions and words. Um, so the nonviolent part is both this, the, the being rooted in nonviolence, but also recognizing the role language plays in whether or not we're willing to, to use, to use violence. So, um, so I think that what happens is people, people get stuck on the form, the external form, which is a training of attention to identify certain components of our experience that make it easier to hear one another. The observations of what happened, the feelings that we have about it, the underlying needs that drive those feelings, and then our ideas or strategies about how to move forward, the kinds of requests we can make. But people get fixated on that rigid form, and it it becomes co-opted by the systems of performance, people-pleasing, white dominance, the, all, all of the kind of cultural, the unquestioned, unconscious cultural systems that we are socialized into, if we don't have a practice of awareness to illuminate those and transform them, then any system we pick up, whether it's meditation or nonviolent communication, or I dare say, even anti-racism can can become co-opted by those same systems of dominance. So I don't think it's anything inherent in nonviolent communication that it becomes used in ways that can be people-pleasing, um, oppressive, uh, very white-dominated, um, manipulative. All of those can be true, but it's how it's used, it's how it's held, rather than something inherent in it. Yeah, yeah, that's helpful for me because actually you just helped me realize even for the last number of years, I think I have been pretty fixated on form. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I mean, I worked with couples for a number of years when I right. was working as a therapist and it was mm-hmm. so useful. I mm-hmm. mean, the form was just yeah. 
profound for having right. people just hear each other. Yeah. And you know, a moment I want to talk to you about, well, how can we map this specifically onto trauma? And I know that's mm -hmm. part of your trainings and just for, and also I want to talk about this moment, you know, the election and mm -hmm. what you, polarization, mm -hmm. you know, just for, for, for people that are new to nonviolent communication, can yeah. you talk just for really briefly about some, just offer some data points around the form? Like sure. if I'm in a you know, workshop, what am I actually learning in terms of the practice? Right. I know we could hang here for a long time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think one of the first things that folks will learn in many nonviolent communication trainings or workshops is that we have this tendency to blame, to use a strategy of blaming other people or external circumstances when our needs aren't met. It's just kind of the way we've been conditioned by our society. Mm -hmm. And we tend to view the world through a certain lens, through a certain story that says that whenever there's conflict or disagreement, it's a very binary situation where someone's going to win and get what they want. And then I'm going to lose and not get what I want. Right. Kind of a zero sum approach to the whole thing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, we get indoctrinated into these particular worldviews and the rules of the game that people are inherently selfish and greedy and evil. So we need to control those base impulses. And, you know, it's a win-lose, zero-sum game. So, you know, right. when that's the context, then we show up in this very either offensive or defensive way. And at, at the at the root, nonviolent communication is about developing access to a different worldview, to a different story that says, actually, human beings want to be compassionate and help each other. We've just lost touch with it. Mm -hmm. And that when we're able to stay in touch with that place and come from that place, it opens up new possibilities. So how do we do that? Well, on the one hand, we learn to view and understand the blame and the frustration and our own internal experience as information about our own feelings and needs. Something happened. Mm -hmm. That's the stimulus. That's the observation in the form of nonviolent communication. And we try to determine what actually happened. How do we separate out our judgments and evaluations and interpretations from as close as possible to the pure data of whatever we're seeing? And then how do we feel about it? What are the emotions that we're feeling on the inside? This is where some of our life energy is, where some of the, the pain or reactivity can be. And then most importantly, why? We only feel things because there's something that matters to us. And this is one of the fundamental views and insights of humanistic psychology, as you know, that human beings are motivated by shared fundamental universal needs that we all long to be happy, to be seen, to um, have meaning and purpose, to be understood and so forth. And that if we can start to identify what actually matters to us in a situation at the root, we have more clarity and power and leverage in how we express ourselves. So what happened? How do we feel about it? Why? What are the needs? And then last, where do we go from here? Can we come mm -hmm. up with a few ideas for how to proceed? So in terms of expressing ourselves, that's some of the training, some of the internal training to identify these different components. And then we also learn to apply that same framework to hearing and understanding others, regardless of how they're speaking to us. And this is one of the places where people tend to get tripped up as they learn this form and then go around and start uh, <laughs> trying to control other people and tell them you're speaking wrong, you're doing it wrong, yeah, say, right, it, say it this way, which right, doesn't, right. doesn't go over so well. Yeah. So when we learn these tools, we take on the responsibility to um, to support dialogue and mutual understanding and regardless of how others are speaking to us to hear what's in their heart yeah. and so when yeah. others are blaming at blaming us to shift internally hold ourselves with empathy and compassion and then try to see underneath the exterior of blame to what's actually happening for this person in their heart. How might they be feeling? And more importantly, what do they need? What matters to them? What fundamental underlying universal human need do they have that I can actually connect with? Yeah. So if someone's telling me that they think I'm really selfish and egotistical, instead of getting defensive and arguing about it, can I try to hear what's underneath it and say, wow, it sounds like I've done some things that 
really, you know, rubbed you the wrong way. And that I'm guessing that you're wanting more consideration or, or more balance in our relationship somehow that matters to me. I'd love to talk about that to try to hear what is the essence behind what they're saying mm-hmm. um, that's shared. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, hearing you talk, it's, it's been a while since I've heard those different principles kind of summed up like mm-hmm. that. And immediately I'm struck by where mindfulness is going to be so useful inside the practice as a lifelong right. path to know what, you know, what's happening when it's right. happening right. in the moment. And then what you just said also there's a bridge here to me about some of the trauma-informed, trauma-sensitive practice, which is this mm. a core attitude or paradigm of curiosity. Yes. And someone sent me, I don't know if you saw this, but someone, um, I think Oprah, it was Oprah went down this whole rabbit hole a couple of years ago around trauma-sensitive practice. And someone sent me this mm. uh, piece that she did when she was working for 60 Minutes. And she mm. was so lit up around learning this paradigm around trauma-informed practice. And she was saying for her, the light bulb went off when it was this shift from what's wrong with you mm-hmm. to what happened to you. Mm-hmm. And that, would, that created right. this whole pivot for her yeah. at, at a policy level. So anyway, I'm just feeling these, these the bridges yeah. between what it means to take on that curiosity and, and, yeah. and all that it can open up. Yeah. And, and this is, this is a good place, David, maybe to just insert like what we were talking about before the call of, you know, the work that I do with mindful communication. And so going back to what we were saying before about how easy it is to misuse the tools of nonviolent communication, you know, the, the, the pieces that I bring when I, when I teach and share it and in the, the writing and work that I do of mindful communication is one to really emphasize the factor of presence and awareness as the foundation, as the mm-hmm. starting point. And then two, to highlight an element that is present implicitly in nonviolent communication, but that doesn't get named or taught in the form, which, which I think is, um, is a liability. And that's this piece of intention of where are you coming from mm-hmm. and, and really highlighting how do we cultivate this spirit of genuine curiosity as a guiding and animating force behind the form. And I find when those two inner components are present, the sense of awareness and then the genuine intention to understand and get curious, the those shape how we show up and how the form is used and guard against some of the misapplications or misuses of the tools. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is one of the places that I've been in debate with people around is this um, issue around intention and impact Mm -hmm. Um, that people can have a certain intention, but then they had an impact and there's Mm -hmm. this whole, um, there's a Mm -hmm. lot of different places we could go here, but can you talk about how, how does not, how do you conceptualize or how do you think about intention and impact? Because, you know, I, I guess just to be transparent, the last I'd say seven years more in the social justice work I've been involved in intention has really been put to the side. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't necessarily matter what someone's intention is. If they said something that was deemed hurtful and experienced mm-hmm. as hurtful, mm-hmm. then someone, you know, that's their experience. And we talk about it from there. But it really, it's really diminished the importance to me of intention, that there mm-hmm. would be a difference between, mm-hmm. say, someone who's, you know, an actual racist who's saying something uh, really hurtful mm-hmm. and with an intention behind it of harm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. versus someone who says something that doesn't necessarily have that intention and apologizes, wants to be accountable for it. And do we, how do we understand the difference between those two interactions? Are they yeah. just, are they put together into one or do we separate them out? I just, I'm curious how you're thinking about that or what nonviolent communication would say about it. Sure. Yeah. Great question. On one level, one could say it's very simple. And then on another level, you could say it's a very complex terrain. Um, I think the, the, the simplified version that you're naming is the sense of um, where is the harm being caused? Mm-hmm. Right. And how do we attend to human suffering? whether that's physical, emotional, psychological, or otherwise. And on that level, uh, yeah, you can be a well-intentioned fool and cause a lot of harm in the world. Right, right. Right. It's like intention isn't everything. It's just one factor. Uh, You also need wisdom and skill. You need compassion. You need um, 
timing, you know, there's all these other factors that go into whether or not something is effective or helpful or brings about the desired result in the world. Uh, so on that level, you can simplify it. However, I think that human relationship is complex and there are many different contexts operating. And so for me, it's not possible to say, you know, well, one is more important than the other because you have to define the context. And if the context is, uh, for example, my own internal experience of the world and my own spiritual development and the trajectory of my life, then intention is super important. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like mm -hmm. if I'm not living with intention, if I'm not pay, if I'm not attending to my motivations in life, <laughs> then I'm probably acting out unconscious impulses that are not going to be helpful for me or the world. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can't say that impact is more important than intention in that context. So it depends on the context that we're talking about. Yeah. If we're talking about a conversation between two people who have relatively different access to power based on their social location or, you know, st structural power in an organization or something, then... Yeah, we could say that impact is as important, if not more important, than intention. So I, I think that the difference that you're pointing to between malintent having impact and good intent having impact when there's ignorance present, right? When there's mm -hmm. actually like, you know, not enough skill and wisdom and awareness for that positive intent to show up in a way that is supportive, helpful, healing, onward leading. Mm -hmm. Then one of the things that, that I practice with that I'm, I'm aware of and try to bring into my relationships is what's being asked of me in this moment. Mm -hmm. How am I being asked to show up and, and what is, what is actually needed in the moment? And the, you know, the, the, the classic example of, you know, that's used in social justice work of stepping on someone's toes and then shouting and saying, ouch, you know, <laughs> and, and the person who stepped on their toes, either saying like, you know, like, don't get mad at me. I didn't mean it. <laughs> right. Or like say, ouch, nicer. Right. Like this complete, we see how ridiculous it is to either call attention to our intent or to get angry at the person for the way they said, ouch. It's like, no, you say like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Are you okay? Right. Right. Like right. I just like I just did something that like brought up a lot of pain in you. It doesn't matter that like, well, you shouldn't be wearing sandals or, you know, it's like, no, I stepped on your toes. That hurts. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in the moment when we, we, we bring it down to that that reality, it's it's quite clear. Mm -hmm. So but then, you know, there's there, there there are these layers that are present in any interaction because we are social beings and because we carry history within us. So if I as a straight white guy say something that uh, lands as racist or sexist or homophobic or, you know, to someone else and brings up a lot of pain, the various dimensions that are present in that interaction, I want to be able to honor those and be responsive to those based on how the other person is experiencing me. And my desire to be seen for my intention is coming to the situation. And I know that you you know this, obviously, where you're kind of going over kind of core perspectives on on the work of healing oppression on an individual level. You know, my, my desire to be seen for my intention is about just the, the, the purely individual and interpersonal relationship mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. this other person is actually saying to me, no, there's something else happening here that you're not seeing. And so I want to be able to honor that reality instead of asserting that my reality is more important or takes priority. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And whether or not there's space for that other person to hear my reality will depend a lot on the context and on our relationship. Mm -hmm. Like if we don't know each other, they might not be interested <laughs> in my experience or hearing my relation and hearing my intention. Mm -hmm. Whereas if we do know each other and have an ongoing relationship, then there might be space for making that distinction between was there intent or was it unconscious uh, and based on some form of ignorance. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, I just appreciate what you're saying about it can be both simple and complex here. Yeah. But there's so many places to go around context. You know, I've been doing mm-hmm. a lot of research and study over the last couple of years about safe spaces, primarily in academia, and this debate about if a professor is bringing in ideas that could be perturbing uh-huh. to someone and even evoke historical trauma, uh-huh, uh-huh. is that professor causing harm? Right. And how much responsibility does anyone in a position, well, any of us generally, but say someone in a position of authority, take right. for people's experience? And so just it's a helpful reminder of how multi, multi-layered mm-hmm. it is here. And then as you're saying, it's so context-specific within that domain, which is why I respect right. the, the work that you're doing is that you're often, I think, having to look at very specific interactions and moments and saying, what's the most skillful move here? How mm-hmm. do we, mm-hmm. how do we do well together? Right. There's actually, a, there's one more question I have in, inside of this. And then I want to ask you about trauma and how you, how you think of how this all intersects. You just, you just mentioned about realities kind of shared rea- shared realities or different realities um, yeah different realities yeah in the, in the context and i'm thinking about meaning making here and one of the things i learned from nonviolent communication that was just a total life changing mm-hmm. uh, it, it was it was both a form but it was also as you i think as you said earlier part of the larger um you know the principle or um epistemology was actually this idea of um saying and instead of but <laughs> which was so simple. Mm-hmm. I saw some sort of memes about it, but it once it basically, as I understood the teaching, maybe you can fill it in here. It was, you know, if you find yourself saying, yeah, but, and then, mm-hmm. you know, having a, a communication with someone that, that just that word mm-hmm. is a way to say, I, I, I hear you, but I'm going to immediately give a counter as opposed to with, and mm-hmm. kind of affirming the reality. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's your, okay. And I, that's your experience. And here's where I'm at. Mm-hmm. And it felt like more, uh, allyship or joining together with someone. And it helped me realize, wow, there's times where I'm kind of refuting someone's reality. Right. Yeah. But I didn't step on your toe for that example. Yeah. But I didn't right. mean it. Right. So I started to use and a lot. And my question is the last, I'd say the last year, here in the U.S. politically around Trump, when I've been reading uh, uh, articles in the New York Times, for example, they started to use but hmm. in a different way. And it used to be, in my experience of in terms of meaning making, the paper was more and. Trump said this, and actually, here's, the, mm-hmm. here's what we want to point to. But actually what started to happen was there's literally more buts Mm. in the newspaper. People saying this was said, but that's actually not true. Mm. And we're going to, we're going to forward a different reality here. And Mm -hmm. it seemed to create, it seemed to reflect the larger polarization or the, the breaks in meaning making that's happening across different communities and here in this country. So I don't even know what my question is as much as this, I'm experiencing this, it seems more polarizing towards, but, and how do you think about that with the and? Thanks. It's so rich. There's actually like all these different synapses going off because I want to go (laughs) like three different directions at the same time. So, all right. So I'm going to, I'm going to map where my mind is and then we'll see if we can cover them. So I want to be mindful. (laughs) I want to start with the, with the interpersonal and the example that you gave of like, I hear what you're saying, but then, yeah, let's talk about the current political landscape and media. And then let's go back to intention versus impact and talk about the relevance of and versus, but in terms of history and social power. Great. So on the interpersonal level, the the joke. This is much. This is a communication insight that's much more universal than nonviolent communication. Um, many many different communication schools and techniques will will teach this. And the the joke is, um, if you're having an argument with someone and you want them to hear, you don't stick your butt in their face. <laughs> I think that's what I saw. Like right. Some figure, so yeah. now the key here. And this goes back to what I was saying before about form versus spirit is that skillful communication is not about what we say. It's not about, it's not in the words and yes, words matter. And it's about where we're, (laughs) it's about where we're coming from inside and the quality of understanding and connection that we're able to create. So, you know, we can be having a discussion and you can say something and I can say, yeah, David, I hear that this is what's important to you. And 
da 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 And even though I'm using the word and, I'm actually saying but. Oh, I see what you're saying. I got you. It's, yeah. You know, it's, it's, yeah, the word and makes a difference and it helps us cognitively shift out of the framework that says my reality and experience is in conflict with yours is in contradistinction to yours. And it, it presents in the mind conceptually, it opens the possibility to us holding the possibility that, oh, these two experiences or realities can coexist, that they can be joined rather than butting against each other. No mm-hmm. pun intended. <laughs> so if our, if our consciousness is still, you know, if we're still thinking and experiencing what I want to say and what you want to say as, you know, in, in, in conflict with each other, we can say and, but still mean, but so it, it's really the internal shift. That's important. That's one, two on the interpersonal level, even saying and what I try to encourage people to do is to actually separate the empathy from the response. So if we're having a discussion or an argument about something and I want to affirm or I want to let you know that I hear you, yeah. if I go into that and I say, you know, David, what, what I'm getting is that, you know, you really think this way and you really feel this way. And then immediately I go on to my point and say, and here's what I'm saying. It kind of negates the whole thing. I got you. Yeah. Because it communicates on some subtle or not so subtle level that I'm just parroting what you said in order to get to my point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what I encourage people to do is say, okay, if you're going to do that, which is really helpful in many situations, just do that. Here's what I'm, you know, so this is what you're saying. Here's what I'm getting. It sounds like this is what's important to you full stop, like let the other person take that in and respond, land there until you get that confirmation that I'm hearing you accurately, that I've actually understood what it is you want me to know before going on to, okay, great, thanks. And here, and then move on to the and so that you're, you're separating the two of those in time and space enough for your nervous systems to, to begin to sync with each other that like, I have actually heard you and now I want to introduce this other experience or this other point. Which, which often feels like a very vulnerable moment. Mm-hmm. And, and if I'm just going to be with you, mm-hmm. it just seems like that's that's the moment of so much possibility, right? Of oh wow, my my reality or my stance could sh- could actually shift here mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. I just let in, as you're saying, with the pause. Like, right. did I did I get you? Did mm-hmm. I did I hear you? And um, mm-hmm. I find there's gonna be so much healing there mm-hmm. in in that moment. So that's mm-hmm. powerful to hear. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, there can be, and it doesn't mean that we have to agree. Right. It doesn't mean this is the this is the fear that many people have when they hear this kind of thing. It's like, well, why, you know, how am I going to why am I going to tell this person what I think is important to them? They're just going to, you know, think that I'm agreeing or supporting their views. And it's like, no, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to understand the other side here so that I can have a fuller picture of the situation. And, you know, we can even say to the other person, you know, I, I think I see this pretty differently from you. Mm-hmm. And I want to try to make sure that I'm understanding. Yeah. We frame it that way to say like, you know, like I don't want to have an argument with the projection in my mind about what you're saying or my interpretation of what you're saying. I want to actually argue with what you mean, what you want me to understand. So let's actually take it apart first and make sure that I'm getting it. I so rarely see that. I feel like right no. now. Yeah. That's a powerful move to make. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so that's the, on the interpersonal level in terms of the, the media and what we're seeing, not just here in the United States, right. But around the world in terms of the rise of right-wing nationalism and the political polarization, you know, is, is there's this, there's this breakdown of, of discourse and of, shared information systems and the, you know, even the possibility of having a constructive conversation because of these kind of alternate realities that, that the media is, um, is creating. So, you know, when I hear you talk about that rhetorical shift in, in headlines, I interpret that as, as wanting to highlight, um, 
the difference. Yes. For yes. out of out of concern that not taking a clearer stance around it is in, is in some way legitimizing or yes. or or furthering harm by uh, supporting either narratives that are that are false or that um, that have direct impacts that are harmful. Definitely. Yeah. It does seem this is the moment we're in where what what you just said a couple minutes ago, where you said, if someone was to say, I hear you, like deeply hear you, that mm-hmm. there's the fear that it will legitimize the view somehow, mm-hmm. that we can't have room for conflict, that that disagreement can be there. And then yeah. what you just said, yeah, I do think that was a very, very intentional move editorially. And I've mm-hmm. seen that elsewhere to say, this is it. We are intentionally highlighting here that difference. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so it does feel like, where are we landing? And often it just feels like, as you're saying, there's the kind of primary discourse that seems to be um, shaking and falling apart. And I don't know where it's going to come back together. Yeah. So I want to go back to this, um, this other question around intent versus impact, because I know, I know that you and I care about these issues very deeply, um, and want to use our position and power as white men, as teachers having some kind of a platform to, uh, to further the cause for justice and equity. And I, I think one of the things that I, that I see happening and one of the, like one of the leading edges for me in my own personal life and my own practice, um, my own anti-racist practice that I feel like the, the movement is, is, calling for, uh, from those who have historically had, and to this day have more power and privilege and access to resources is the capacity to hold the dual realities, say of intention versus impact to mm-hmm. hold the both and without needing to assert our reality. Hmm. That's to, to, an example or yeah. Yeah, sure. So so the example, you know, so an example of say uh, blundering into some microaggression where say, you know, a woman of woman of color says to me, you know, that was really effed up, you know, that was that was pretty racist or that was pretty sexist, right? Mm-hmm. And tolerating the discomfort of but that's not what I meant. And mm-hmm. here's where I was coming from. And, you know, and being able to hold internally my reality mm-hmm. of, of what I meant and where I was coming from and what I intended and their reality of how it landed and their life experiences and the number of times that similar things have been said or done in an unconscious way and you know what it brings up for for this person in terms of their life experiences or mm-hmm. uh, the way that they're perceived or seen or not seen or there, there there are two things here that i that i see happening in my circles and in the in the broader um, discourse. So one is many white people or men, um, like if you go back to the Me Too movement, um, kind of not being able to hold the dual reality and the the, lo- the long view of history that says, yeah, your, your reality of your intention and where you're coming from, that's been the dominant story for the last however many hundreds of years. And what this person is asking of you right now, just for like, you know, five minutes is to make some space is to Mm -hmm. actually step back and listen and acknowledge, Oh, there's another experience here. That's different than mine that Mm -hmm. comes, that's coming from a different point of view and a, and a different life experience Mm -hmm. and to, and to be able internally to hold both of those realities without needing to assert mine, Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. hold the both and, and say, I'm willing to, I'm willing to deal with the discomfort of maybe not being seen or understood in this moment, recognizing that this person and people who look like them or uh, have um, occupied a similar position in our society for generations have not been heard. 
And that my one moment of not being heard relative to the history that this person is carrying in their own life and through their ancestors of not being heard are very, very different. Yeah. Yeah. This might be a a good segue into Mm -hmm. talking about trauma. Here we are quite a ways into the conversation, Mm -hmm. but I feel like it's been here. But yeah. um, And I, I agree with you that for anyone, but especially people in more positional power to hold complexity and nuance is key. Mm -hmm. And this is where mindfulness to me is also so incredibly helpful around communication more generally is to say, okay, I can be with my experience, different realities, history. I can, you know, be with all that's here. And with trauma, you know, so often we're moving into moments where we're being hijacked Mm-hmm. by more emotional or survival-based responses. Mm-hmm. And it becomes very difficult to hold that nuance. Mm-hmm. Like literally I heard um, it was being talked about in in terms of social media, but this idea of um, the race to the bottom of the brainstem. Oh, wow, getting, yeah. Getting back to some of the most... Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the most basic instincts that we have when we're talking about trauma, we're often talking about those survival responses. And so we can have all the theory that we want here. Yeah. And then in a moment of, and I've seen this over and over again, in a moment where a trigger happens that could be related, for example, to historical trauma, it's just everyone's out of their window of tolerance. Everyone's Mm -hmm. just just pretty dysregulated Mm -hmm. and trauma's there. And it becomes very hard to enact some of these tools that we're talking about. So could you talk for a little bit about just how do you integrate? I know that you do, you know, thinking about trauma into your work. And I realize this is a massive um, topic, but just where do you, where do you plug that in? Sure. Well, I, th- I think to start, I think that the the very the point that you just made around how hard it is when those survival impulses come up um, is the reason why um, so many, or one reason I should say, it's, it, my understanding of one reason why so many anti-racist educators are clamoring for white people to do their own healing work around racism. Mm-hmm. Right mm-hmm. is is yeah. to actually begin <laughs> begin to acknowledge that we carry wounds too from the history of this nation and from the history of colonialism and racism around the world and anti-blackness around the world. And that until we begin to acknowledge that and heal some of the traumatic wounds in our own lineages and in our own psyches, we won't have the resources and the resilience to show up in that moment and hold what's being asked of us to do the interpersonal healing work that's possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I just, I just wanted to make that connection there in the bridge and the, in the conversation. Yeah, definitely. So in terms of my, my work around communication, I, I'll be frank and say that I, I think that I could do a better job actually of integrating trauma sensitive perspectives. And it's one of the reasons I have, I have so much respect and gratitude for the work that, that you're doing of, of highlighting and making accessible trauma sensitive resources. Um, but the, the ways that I focus on it are one with some basic nervous system education mm-hmm. and helping people to understand that one of the reasons why we can't access the skills and the good intentions and uh, wisdom that we have in moments of conflict is because we get activated beyond our window of tolerance. And sometimes just knowing that, like just having some basic psychoeducation around what's happening in our nervous system helps people have more compassion for themselves and begin to learn how to work with the energies in their bodies. Definitely. I've seen Dan Siegel talk about this with parents and teens. Right, right. We're saying your teenager that you're working with, I think he describes it as flip your lid, Mm -hmm. like when you become highly dysregulated, Mm -hmm. that there's actually a developmental piece happening here that can, when he talks about it, I think can help people empathize with teens or youth in that moment. I don't mean it's not an automatic bridge over to what we're talking about here, but I do think some education around 
nervous system regulation is is mm-hmm. key, not as an excuse for bad behavior, no, but as a way to say, wow, let's how can we actually support each other to have right. transformative conversations along the way, right? And so then I I integrate some of the the principles of somatic experiencing of Peter Levine's work into the communication training. So we begin really with developing a base of resilience and resource. So I, I teach about orienting and how to, how to connect with your body, how to develop the capacity to feel and recognize what's happening and start to um, metabolize and process activation. Yeah. We talk about um, recognizing the signs and signals of activation that are in, in the, personal way that each one of us experiences it. And there's this, right, there's this range of things that can happen, but for each of us, it shows up differently based on our conditioning. Mm -hmm. And so encouraging people to start to get familiar with those states and those signs and symptoms, and then helping people learn how to support the process of deactivation uh, of settling. Like, what does it look like? And, um, how can you, how can you linger with even one, one out breath or one moment of agreement in a conversation as a way of staying regulated? Yeah. Yeah. Those moments are powerful. You <laughs> exactly. just feel it when the heat goes down just a little bit, like, mm-hmm. okay, I hear you here. I don't agree, but I hear you. Yeah. You just feel the temperature shift. <laughs> but it, but so often we miss it, right? We don't actually take it in. And so one of right, the, one right. of the, tools that's essential for staying regulated in conversation is learning how to find those moments that that are present of a gap, a space, a moment of acknowledgement, um, mm-hmm. a, a little bit of experience of more uh, openness internally and really linger in them. And then the, the last thing that I, I emphasize from the very beginning um, or, or there's kind of two 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 points. Uh, one is again this sense that your communication habits and patterns live in your nervous system as mm-hmm. as programs as self protective programs. Um, that's one. And then two, in order to shift those, it's going to be easier if we do it in, in, in an incremental fashion. And mm-hmm. so the, the very, the model that I use for communication training is, is the model that I use for communication practice is a training model. So just like if you were training for a marathon or training for, you know, a triathlon, you start small and you build capacity and it's, you know, it's, that's, that's how we heal trauma. That's how we increase the window of tolerance. And that's how we develop skill and communication is you don't go into the most challenging conversation in your life after you've taken one seminar, you know, that's great. You, you try it out with a friend in a low stakes situation and you build some capacity, some yes, confidence right. and resilience to to train your nervous system to have less of that anxiety, that fight flight response to start to have a cellular memory of, Oh, I've got some tools here. I can handle this. We can disagree and still find each other. That's Mm -hmm. not a thought. That's a felt experience that we need to develop through healing all of the many, many moments in our lives of it going south and leading to more pain and disconnection. Yes. And so that happens slowly. Yeah. This is where I'm inspired that, you know, that you have a community and that there's just so many people doing this work is that what I see happening over and over and have experienced myself as I'm in rooms where there's some consciousness around trauma and trying to do some healing work Mm -hmm. and transformative work around oppression. And it just, Mm -hmm. you know, something comes up there's a conflict in the room and it's, it's like you're saying about the exercise or building mm-hmm. towards it. It's almost like the room of people that often don't know each other very well mm-hmm. is moving from <laughs> trying to lift five pounds to suddenly trying to deadlift a right. hundred pounds. It's just, it's, there's yeah. so much happening in that moment that yeah. 
the system can't hold it. Right. And, and then what's disapp- what's saddening and disappointing often is that people end up feeling deflated and saying, this never goes well. This is always where the room shatters. And right, right. So I just love that you're talking about the training. There's you, we build towards having difficult conversations yeah. over time. Right. Trauma is going to be there. Yeah. And, and that's very much, I think, you know, we can apply this to what's happening at a larger level in our society, which is, um, my friend and colleague who, who you might know, Kazu Haga, who runs the East Point Peace Academy and is a Kingian nonviolence trainer. You know, he, um, he put out an article recently on waging nonviolence saying, you know, we are, we are, ha- whether we like it or not, we're having a very public conversation about racism and trauma and the history of, of this country here in the United States and, you know, more broadly in the world about colonialism and imperialism and white dominance. And the reality is that there isn't enough resource. There's, there's not enough resilience. We haven't done the the legwork to have that conversation, but it's erupting. Mm -hmm. And, and so I think a lot of what we see happening can be understood from a, from a trauma, uh, healing perspective as the, the, kinds of breakdown and splintering that happens when you're dealing with these states of high activation without enough resource and resilience. Absolutely. So, so we get the kind of, um, I very sort of rigid either or, and people digging in their heels and, uh, and a, um, an inability to acknowledge nuance or complexity and the, as the, as the heat turns up and the state feel higher, um, further, further and further, Mm -hmm. um, polarization rather than the, the kind of, uh, integration that's possible when the conditions are present for healing. Yes. Yeah. Well, maybe this is a, then this is a be a good place to, to wrap. I know there's so much we could talk Mm -hmm, about, mm -hmm. but kind of coming full circle to this particular moment here, we're recording this, uh, you know, a week or two after here the elections in the U.S. and we were talking offline about the this documentary of a social dilemma, mm-hmm. um, which, if you haven't seen it, this is talking about just the intense polarization that's happening around social media and the ways that I mean, we could have a whole conversation about the impact of social media on communication more generally and mm-hmm. what gets amplified and outrage culture, but maybe if you could just talk for a moment about your general assessment of the landscape. I don't know how dire it is. This might, we might be ending on a hard note, but you know, when I've heard conversations about what seems to be this breakdown of discourse, this seems to be, um, the, the challenges posed by social media, what do you see as the path ahead? You know, what are kind of the best practices we can be in? And, um, mm. do we have, is there hope? <laughs> I'm feeling a little pessimistic the last stretch, but I'm just curious what you see. Yeah. And and I'd love to hear what you see also, David. Um, I mean, the, the, the honest answer is, I don't know. I don't, I don't really know. And, um, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I do, I do believe that the current, many of the current channels of information and media are not the right venues for the kinds of conversations that we need to have. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we've, we've known about filter bubbles and the echo chamber that those create for, for a long time that, that, you know, um, the movie and the, and the work that Tristan Harris and the center for humane technology is doing is just, it's really, um, unpacking how and why that's happening and in this interface between technology and capitalism and, and social media, um, so I, I think we need my, there, there are two things, there are two things that I'm contemplating right now around this question, v- very much with, with a sense of not knowing, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and a desire to, um, to listen to particularly, um, working class people and people of color to, to hear what, what they're saying and, and what they think is the way forward. Um, because I, I know enough to know that my perspective is by default skewed based on my 
you know, life experience and social location. So the, the, the two things that I'm contemplating and holding, one is this sense of how do we create spaces um, and the conditions for more meaningful healing conversations? Mm-hmm. There are colleagues of mine who who are doing this from living room, Joan Blades' living room conversations to Braver Angels to um, Sidewalk Talk to uh, another friend of mine who's an NVC trainer, John Kenyon, who's been doing some healing conversations. Uh, so it, it is happening in different ways. And I'm, I'm very, very interested in how do we, how do we create intentional space where the conditions are present to have more meaningful healing conversations about what's unfolding um, on multiple levels, whether we're talking about the environment, race, politics, income inequality, there are so many urgent issues and Mm -hmm. so much disagreement and polarization around them with, with what I see and believe are still in spite of the polarization, a set of shared material needs and human values. That's great. So that's one that's one thing I'm contemplating. But the other thing that I'm contemplating, and one of the things that I'm hearing, particularly from um, some people of color leaders, and to a certain extent from people in the labor movement and the working class movement to organize, is this sense of we're not interested in elevating the need for reconciliation or dialogue at this point because there's too much direct harm and suffering happening and that the first priority needs to be addressing the harm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and how do we, you know, how do we create a movement and a, a base of grassroots power that has the leverage to change policy and legislation so that there's more uh, safety, equal distribution of resources and, and dignity for people. And so, so for me, like those are the two things that I'm holding and try and, and very much asking like, I don't know that those are mutually exclusive, but they seem to, but I think that the current political climate is framing them as mutually exclusive, that you're either like, we need to heal the nation and have reconciliation, or we need to fight for justice. And my, my personal intuition is that those two actually can support each other. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? What do, what do you see right now? And what's your take on, on this well, there's so much here. The the personal one thing I hear you bridging, I appreciate that you're not holding them as um, as exclusive. Mm-hmm. And the people that some of the people I've looked up to the most um, in my learning, especially the last say decade, has been organizers and healers who are are bridging personal and social change, mm. who are who are actively uh, challenging any kind of. Uh, ex, uh, separation between the two that unless a, a group of a group period, but a group of organizers say, unless there is some trauma healing work that can happen inside that group, um, then that group, the group will be less powerful if that trauma healing hasn't happened. And so just constantly making connections between personal and social change, right. that really, that really inspires me. And, you know, as you're just saying about, um, being challenged towards white people right now and anti-racist work is to, to build that capacity. And it's part of my sometimes critique around white fragility is that it feels like it doesn't always bring in the strongest enough trauma analysis that mm-hmm. says no matter someone's best intentions, I mean, I, meet a lot of people that you know, the white person who causes some, something happens and, and despite the best of intentions to stay present, right. they're hijacked. And so yeah. what is going to help build capacity? And, but then to this last point of, of Tristan, as you said, mm-hmm. my, what, uh, I was really curious to, you know, to hear him talk about, okay, well, is there a e-break here? Uh, mm-hmm. What is the way back? And I appreciate you saying the reminder that Right, this has been happening about bubbles, the impact of bubbles for a long time, but maybe it's being amplified. And he, what he said that helped me was talking about the need to be mindful. Mm. That I feel like what he said was the more that we are actually 
a, a, a person or a community is aware of the impact of, for example, outrage culture or what's happening yeah. in social media, yeah. the more there will be an organic shift back towards how what you could say wholeness or a, a humanism mm-hmm. that both can hold. This is the vision I have that can hold identity is important, but not always so central yeah. that there's a loosening of the grip that there is a shared humanity, but it's not a bypass of right. the real harms that we experience based on our identity. But yeah. it, that's tricky. It's a high degree of difficulty that both end. Yeah. So yeah, I'm with you in it. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm just, I'm with you. Yeah. And, yeah. and just to echo, you know, the, what Tristan is saying, uh, maybe the last the last point here I would make is particularly around, around social media and, and around the news is to, um, is to be really discerning about how much time we spend on the, Mm -hmm. on, on the device and scrolling. And it's just, you know, as the whole movie points out, that social dilemma documentary, it's, it's designed to be addictive. And so it takes a lot of clarity and restraint and diligence to have a healthy relationship with it. Have you figured that out? <laughs> I put, I put on an app limit. Have you seen this trick? Where oh you, yeah, sure. Limit it. And I, and I was like, okay, for a good solid week, I'm like, I got it. 15 minutes max. Yeah. And then I would start bypassing it manually. I just, it is powerful. We're yeah. up against supercomputers yeah. in those moments. So if you figured that out, will you drop me an email? <laughs> sure. <Let> me know. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, how can people, um, how can people find you? I know you do trainings and just, um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, they can find me on social media. <laughs> so, um, uh, I, I make an, I make an effort to, I am on social media, um, and I make an effort to have the messages and the content that I put out actually be encouraging people to be more mindful and get off of social media <laughs> or, or make more, just, you know, make more conscious choices. So I'm on social media at Oren J Sofer, O-R-E-N-J-A-Y-S-O-F-E-R. And on, then my website is orenjsofer.com. And yeah, I have um, meditations and classes and retreats happening, uh, happening all the time. And all of that information's on my website. Great. Yeah. Right. Well, I've heard great things about the course. So keep doing what you're doing. And um, I'm sure we'll continue this conversation. Yeah. Thanks, David. Hey, thanks very much for... Um, doing the podcast and putting this stuff out there. Thanks, Oren. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Oren for joining us. If you have any requests of people that you'd like to hear from or topics that you'd like us to cover, please feel free to write us at support at davidtrelevin.com. Any feedback about the podcast is welcome and any ratings are also much appreciated as we grow the podcast. So thanks again and until next time.